It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to have my first guest in the show. He creates pathways for black, indigenous people of color, uh, futures on the land through gardening, land restoration, and land-based healing programs at Evergreen Brickworks in Toronto, and uh, advocating for paid urban farm apprenticeships in a time when unpaid interning is shown to hinder inclusion efforts. And he recently started appearing on CBC Radio's Fresh Air as a gardening expert as well. So uh, maybe we'll ask him a few gardening tips while he's here today as well. (laughs) Isaac Crosby is in the studio. Isaac, pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's great that you could take the time out of your gardening to come (laughs) in. (laughs) That's right. It's starting. It's starting. That's right. It is. Uh, And I guess uh, the other thing that's starting, if it hasn't already, is the flow of sweet water. Yes. Yes, it has. Uh Yes, it has for sure. Yeah. We started tapping our trees down down home Mm. already. So we're ready for it. Yeah. uh, You know, and uh, the reason, of course, we're talking about maple syrup, if Mm -hmm. you're not sure what uh, sweet water is. Uh, and it's named that for a very good reason. If you've not ever <laughs> tasted the uh, the water that does flow out of the trees, uh, it definitely is a very, uh, a very, very delicate sweetness. Yes. It's really lovely. Yes, I like it. I like it better than coconut water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I heard this got it's got really great properties. Yes, that's what I heard. Healing properties and stuff. I want to try this instead of coconut water. Yeah, because when I moved to Toronto, people were like try coconut water. Okay, I'll try coconut water. Now there's maple water. Mm-hmm. I'll go for maple water. I've seen it. I've seen it around, yeah. Um, anyway, so um, Isaac uh, also has uh, a story online about his people. Interesting history. Uh, you can look uh, Isaac's uh, story up. It's called The Lost Feathers. Uh, it has to do with his history uh, as, as a people of the Chippewa of Maldwin, First Nation. Mm-hmm. And um, now the thing is that uh, part of the, I guess, something that you point out in the video that you show in your your story and and you <laughs> you also make reference to this uh and you know i've heard this kind of thing with with other people like um uh drew hayden taylor mm-hmm. uh, if you're familiar with him as a playwright mm-hmm. you know some of uh he, he's got blonde hair and and and, and blue eyes mm-hmm. and he gets a lot of people coming up to him funny you don't look like exactly. a native you yeah. know or you don't look like one <laughs> and those kind of things uh, well you ha- you have a dark complexion yep. uh <laughs> with so, some uh i guess some black heritage yes. in there and yes. you get the same questions <laughs> coming yes, at you from a I different get perspective a lot. i get i got a lot of people ask me oh well, where are you from mm. the other day mm-hmm this guy asked me flat out, "Are you Egyptian?" I'm like, <laughs> really? no, I'm not Egyptian. Wow. Um, you know what? I said, "This is this is actually my family's favorite game." Mm. Whenever people say, "Where are you from?" we always say, "Oh my God, our favorite game." You have three choices, <laughs> and they're like, "What?" And they go, "Um, um." They start stumbling. I'm like, no, you have three choices. Apparently, you must think I come from somewhere. So let me know where you think I come from, and I'll let you know if it's right or wrong. They always get it wrong. <laughs> I am Polynesian. I'm South Asian, mm. I'm Somalian, mm. I'm from all around the world except from here. And I tell them I'm from here, they go, oh, well, wait. Yeah. They go, well, where are your parents from? I go, well, Canada. Their parents, I'm like, Canada. And their parents, I go, yeah, keep going on. I'm still from Canada. They go, wow, we've never heard of you. I said, yeah, because they, they put us all into one big bunch. Mm. They, they go by the whole one drop rule, mm. right? And the thing with the one drop rule is that one, it could be one drop of black blood and you're black, but you hear the elders say one drop of native blood and you're native. Mm. What happens when you have both? Mm. Do they cancel each other out? I don't think so. 
because my people are still here. Yeah, so that's interesting. So why don't we we share a little bit of that history, if you don't mind, because mm-hmm. I find it interesting as well. We don't hear a lot about uh, about your nation or mm-hmm. your people and mm-hmm. and the history and how uh, it's it, it it they're established along the St. Lawrence uh, for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't you share a little bit okay. about that for us? So well, the history of my people. We are the Ojibwa of Anderton. If anybody knows where, where um, Windsor, Ontario is, mm-hmm. we're from a small town half an hour south of Windsor. Um, so we have been there for time immemorial. We're the ones that took in the runaway slaves back in the 1800s, so 1830s. The thing that you need to, know about, need to know about the runaway slaves, a lot of the runaway slaves were actually black indigenous that were escaping north, mm-hmm. coming north because they knew that it was better land, a better chance for them to live. Mm-hmm. So in my family... When the runaway slaves came up, they were actually black Shawnee that came up. They actually lived on the same reserve as us. So the reserve I'm talking about is the um, the Anderton Nation Reserve, or people know it as the Wyandotte Huron Reserve mm. in that area. Mm-hmm. So on that reserve, there was actually the Wyandotte Hurons, there were Delawares, there were Shawnee, and there were Ojibwas. My family, we were the, we were the, one of the only three families left. Mm-hmm. We went from a 3,000-acre reserve to a 300-acre reserve to a 100-acre reserve to absolutely nothing now. So the land that we have now, we actually had to buy back. Mm-hmm. And when we bought it back, we only I think it was like a dollar, dollar fifty back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in southwestern Ontario, because it's the furthest south you can go, and plus it with the influx of all the, the runaway slaves coming north, everyone mixed and mingled. Mm. So with the whole mixing mingled, you also have you have this is where racism and classes classism comes in, where most people it was okay if you were to mix and mingle with the with the whites. You would still get recognition if you mix and mingle with the blacks. You were canceled out. Mm. There was actually an unwritten law in that area where blacks and natives could not marry and have children because their children were seen as wild flowers, wild flowers and wild fires. They couldn't be controlled. Wow. So guess what? We still did it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um, we um, also like in my history. I I remember going way back to like when I was fourteen years old. I saw a videotape of one of my great aunts, and she's the one that sat down and gave the actual history of who we were. And she went back thousands of years coming from the St. Lawrence River mm. in the St. Lawrence area and moving down the St. Lawrence River. Mm. And all along the whole river and every single reserve, every nation would have our bloodline. Mm. And when we came to where we are in southwestern Ontario, we stayed there. And we never moved on. Mm. Most of the people moved on to near Lake Superior and they moved on further. We stayed where we were. And the, the Ojibwas of Anderton are, are seen as a distinct group because most people think because we're Ojibwa, in our, our traditional language, would have been Anishinaabe Moan. Mm. It was not. We have more of an Iroquoian dialect, mm. which is like, okay, which makes sense because that means everyone would actually travel and they would actually come down to that, that mm. area. Mm. I was like, perfect. So finding out more and more and doing more and more research on my people gave came with a lot more history and actually seeing my people's names in all the history books in Canada, history books that I've never been privy to growing up because mm. you're always given a certain set of history to look at, and that's it. And those are the ones that your teachers would grade you on and mark you on. And you're not really told to research any further. But the minute you research any further, you start seeing all the good stuff. Yeah. And all the stuff that you see that you actually start seeing the true history of Canada. Right. That's fascinating in itself right there. Uh, so you mentioned that you, you've, your, your people have bought some yes. property back. Yes. And you're trying to, now I know you've also made it applications. Uh, yes. Truth and Reconciliation helped with your process, I guess, yes. to some degree. Yes, that did. So when the Truth and Reconciliation came out, mm. that was, I just all of a sudden had this aha moment. Mm. I'm going to take all this information and I'm going to send it straight to Carolyn Bennett. Everyone said, no, you got to go to the proper screen. I said, no, me being me, I'm going straight for the top. Let's see what happens at the top. 
So I sent it to her and just let it let it go and kept kept doing my research. Three months later, opened up my email. So I see this this email. I'm like, oh, what's this? Uh, Mr. Isaac Crosby, we have we received your letter. And I started reading it. I was like, oh, okay. She actually answered me back. So within the answer came these applications to get my family registered and, and a guideline to request land. I mean, for me, I was like, okay, all right, this is going to be a big step. Um, how am I going to do this? Mm. And how fast can I do this? <laughs> right? I'm like, okay, if I do it fast, or should I do it right now? Because we know how this government changes all the time. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? I'm actually going to take it kind of slow mm. and get uh, get the word out there. Mm. Because my family, we've been doing this for for a very long time. It always had the door shut in front of our face. Mm. No, no, no. You don't have the proper information. Now, with the with internet and all this good worldwide information, all this stuff came forward. So now we now that we went for it, now everything's coming forward. Now the government's listening to us. Now they're doing more research on us. I mean, it's it's gonna be fun. It's, it's gonna be fun and kind of a big deal, especially in that area. Because in that area, the only recognized band down there, the Caldwell Nation of Leamington. Mm. And in our oral history, the Caldwell Nation came over in seven in seventeen hundreds. So you have them, then with our nation, with the Wyandots, the Wyandots of Anderton, a lot of them, they, they, are, they moved to the States. Mm. But their bloodline is still in Texas County, right? So we're all trying to get together and, and get the proper story of that area, get it properly told. And within that story comes the black Indians. This is a story that people don't really hear about. Mm-hmm. But if you look at history, black Ind- blacks and natives have always had a um, partnership. They've always came together because sure. they had one major oppressor mm-hmm. and they saw it. And so they work together. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of nations that have black black ancestry in them. Mm-hmm. And it was with them that they would stand up and fight even harder because mm-hmm. they, they understood sure. what would happen to them right. if they did not fight or stand up. Yeah, speaking of that, in your history, one of the setbacks that you had was in your community when you were you were losing your land. Uh, part of that was amplified because the records were lost. Yes. Uh, yes. In a fire. Yes. And, and now you did touch on that in your video about it, you only learned in, I guess, the last little while about why and who started that fire. Yes. You didn't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of avoided a few, a few answers. <laughs> That's going to come out in video number two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the video, the video I had to do, it was part of a project called Proclaiming Our Roots. Mm. It's all about black indigenous mm-hmm. and actually standing forth and saying, hey, this is who we are. And so we had to do that video. We had three hours to do that video. And the first 50 minutes, I was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it just hit me. Okay, I'm just going to do this and lay it out this way. And I did it within three hours. So it just gave little touches mm. of what we, who we are and what we're about. Um, our, like, you said, like you said, our history, our papers were burnt in a church fire. Mm. Just like a lot of First Nations people's history was burnt in church fires. And I didn't realize that. I thought, oh, maybe it's just us. And I started talking to more nations. And, well, they did the same thing to us, too. It was a way for them to keep the land because there's right. no records, right? Right. right. Um, and we had like... How handy it is to have them all in the, in the church, you know, yes. like a nice safe place. Yes, because you're told it's all a made nice out of wood. safe place. <laughs> <laughs> all made out of wood and goes up like that. That's right. <laughs> but with the, with the church fire, like we didn't learn until years later who actually did the, who burnt the church fire down. It was one of my aunts. She heard a lady talking about her uncles who were drunk one day. And they're walking towards the church. Mm. And then the next thing you know, they looked at the window and they saw the church on fire. Mm. It's all part of getting our land. Mm. I mean, when I talk about that, I also think in my head right now about the census that was happened with us. On one of the census, the Malden census, 
which was very, very, very hard to find. I had to really search for this one census for that area. In that census, you have my ancestors marked down as Indian, 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 right? Right. right. So you go to the next census, right. those exact same people all of a sudden become colored and black mm. because the, the government wanted our land. Mm. On our land in Nexus County, on, on the Anderton Reserve, we had two quarries on our land. And the quarries are still being pumped, things pumped on to this day. Right. And so you have to look at that. Yep. And so doing, even doing my research and looking at the quarries, I find red, um, distant relatives of mine who said, yeah, our fathers used to get money from that quarry. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, everything just stopped. Right. And I was like, oh, okay, that means more digging for me. You're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Isaac Crosby. And he, uh, among other things, is a gardener. And he's also someone that is creating pathways for black, indigenous people of color, uh, futures on the land through gardening, as I just mentioned, land restoration and land-based healing programs at Evergreen Brickworks in Toronto. And he also uh, started uh, appearing recently on CBC Radio's Fresh Air as a gardening expert. Uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit about that. But before we, we get to the gardening side of things, uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is we're just wrapping up. Uh, it's the end of, of February. It's mm-hmm. a leap year. But, of course, it, uh, February also is uh, Black History Month. Mm-hmm. Um, how, does, how does that impact you, uh, you know, in terms of your, your heritage? Um, impacts me a lot because we need to tell this story. And this story isn't really told in Black History Month. Mm. I mean, personally for me, I think... If we, if we were to do Black History Month again in Canada, it should be in August, first of all, mm. because August 1st is Emancipation Day for blacks. Mm. Mm. Um, the month of August is looked at as a celebration of that. Um, when I found out that February was actually Black History Month for Americans, mm. I was like, oh, okay, well, we're, we're different. Mm. Let's do something different. Mm-hmm. But we're still on the February one. Right. So I always tell my friends, maybe we should do February for black futures and August for black history. Right. Something like that. Do something right. different. But either or... We have to we have to include within the Black history Black Indigenous people because mm-hmm. there's actually a lot a lot within history that we just don't talk about because they're made to choose one or the other or the, right. or the people choose for them right right sure interesting um, now the other thing that uh, as I mentioned uh, you you're into gardening mm-hmm. now how long has gardening been a part of your life oh my goodness um, I am a farmer by blood okay. So I've been gardening, farming all my life. Um, it like my grandparents, great grandparents back home on this third concession. Mm. We're still farming. We still have our land there. We still do it. Um, but we mix we mix our traditional farming with modern farming. Mm-hmm. So modern farming is using tractors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Traditional is using all of our our ancient techniques of gardening. Mm. Um, so I've been doing that all my life. Mm-hmm. I didn't start. I didn't really get involved in. How can I say this? When I was 40 years old mm-hmm. is when I decided to go back to school okay. and study landscape horticulture technician. Okay. So I knew I wanted to go back to school for gardening. Didn't know how to do it. I was checking out all the schools, looking at all the prices. I was like, wow, two to three years and you're like thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 in debt? Oh, I can't do that. And me trusting my gut, go to a garden center, found a garden center, found out the guy who, worked at, who owned a garden center, worked for Landscape, landscape Ontario. Then with that, I realized that if I stay here for a year... I'll be I'll be able to be an apprenticeship ah, to apprentice at, at Humber. Sure. So I did that for a year. Did that and realized, wow, the price dropped. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? From like what, five thousand dollars a year 
to go to school to only paying $650. Right. And that was it. Right. I was like, are you kidding me? I am all over that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was a great way to learn about things I did not know about, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a great way because I realized living in Toronto, Toronto, they want to see a piece of paper saying that you mm. can do something. Sure. I've been gardening all my life. Yeah. I've been living in Toronto for 20-something years. I've always done urban agriculture in Toronto. Mm. And then went and got a piece of paper. Then all of a sudden started working at Green Thumbs, where growing kids, Dovercourt Boys and Girl Club. And then all of a sudden, now I'm working at Evergreen Brickworks, mm. doing doing the indigenous agriculture technique programs and showing what I what I grew up knowing and teaching people as well. So I have a lot of volunteers that come through who want to learn how indigenous people farmed and garden. And at the same time, I realized how, how special and important my family was to still have some sort of land to be on, whereas a lot of First Nations people are we've been disconnected from the land mm. and that has been on purpose. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have, we have not been disconnected from the land, but we've been disconnected from a lot of ceremonies. Right. 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 So it's totally different. So I'm up here teaching what I know mm-hmm. and hopefully learning some of the ceremonies that go along with it. Okay. Right. And they um, go hand in hand. They do. They do. They do. Like I, I know a bit, but not everything. Sure. Right. And some things we do down home is going to be different from up here. Of course. Especially with gardening. Well, you know, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Toronto. Because I know, as you said, you've lived in Toronto a long time, and you mm-hmm. said you've been a gardener your whole life. <laughs> going, Where were you gardening here in Toronto? <laughs> you know? So I'm glad you mentioned that. So, so is that a challenge for you uh, to live in Toronto and garden, or, or you know, or, or for me, honestly, no, okay, not at all. Because I've been, I've been lucky to get jobs where I'm actually gardening. Mm. I'm showcasing my techniques, my skills. Mm. So I've been able to do it. Before right. that, I was always gardening in my backyard. Okay. I lived in Kensington Market for 20-something years, mm-hmm. and I had a, my backyard was a concrete slab. Mm. There was no vegetation back there whatsoever. <laughs> I looked at it, and I was like, I can't, I don't live like this. Right. I need greenery. I need sure. flowers. Sure. So I turned that into this oasis. Right. And so for 15-something years, people actually come back there and take pictures of this little oasis and down in the middle of Kensington Market. Isn't some, that interesting? Sometimes I'd walk by, and I see people sitting mm. in my chairs there, and I'm like, oh, hey. How you doing? They go, yeah, um, we're just sitting here. So that's fine. Just don't destroy the place. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, though, what attracts people? I mean, here you have this concrete slab. You already you bring in some life, mm-hmm. and, and it attracts people. And yet, look at what we live in every day. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yes. <laughs> so there really is this disconnect that we have established for yes. ourselves. Yes. Um, I, I'm wondering, in this day and age, mm-hmm. this, Speaking of that, you know, we have a lot of environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. What, how do you see that these days? Because when you, you know, I, I know it, when you were talking about what you do at, uh, with, with helping to bring people in and get them connected back to the earth mm-hmm. again, because you're, you are connected to the earth mm-hmm. right? and many indigenous people are, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to tell people that are living on reserves or out there, exactly. uh, farmers even, you know, they're connected to the earth. They, mm-hmm. they see what the earth can bring to us mm-hmm. where here people living in cities, they're just zipping around and they're disconnected from this planet that gives right. us life. Right. Uh, they go pick up their eggs and their food at the grocery store. Yes. They don't see where it comes from. They don't yes. see how it's produced. They don't see the either the love or the or or the the modern technology that you know processes all this stuff mm-hmm. um, and might get concerned if they did. Yeah. I see how it how it's processed and gets it to them. Um, but that's but but that I think gives people like yourself. Uh, a way of, of perceiving things that 
many people now don't have anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't have that ability to see that slow. Not it's not just slow. It's a it's like you said when you you get people to pick up the earth and feel it in their hands. Yes. It all it's it's a connection it's because it's connection. where we come from and yep. where we go back to. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we have to like my goal, my purpose is to reintroduce especially our youth mm. back to the land. Mm. Um but I will say this, the more and more I say, especially youth, the more and more I realize that a lot of adults need this too. Oh, yeah. They need this as well to reconnect. Um, it's just to get us to, like you said, like I said before, touch the earth. Mm. When you touch the earth, you make that connection. What I love to see is when I'm down at Brickworks doing my, doing my programs with Native youth is I always tell them, what I'm going to do for you today is reconnect you to blood memory. And they're always like, blood memory, what's that? Your blood memory is a memory of your ancestors that's inside your blood, inside your cells. This, well, this is our things that you probably haven't recognized yet. So what I want to do is get you to touch the earth, get you to smell the soil, get you to be one with the earth because our ancestors were one with the earth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we were there. They, they took care of it. Mm-hmm. We have disconnected that. Oh, yeah. We have decided to go more tech. We just got to decide to go more texting and iPhone and stuff like that. Let's bring it back. Let's slow things down just a bit. Even if it's for five minutes a day, let's just slow it down. And to watch these children's faces. And how they're like, oh, wow, this feels so nice. I said, yeah, so feel how cool the soil feels. You said you can feel the, the heartbeat of Mother Earth if you want to. You can feel the heartbeat of the trees if you want to. All I want you to do is just to slow down. Because mm-hmm. we have all this tech which is making you fast. But guess what? We're humans. We still got to slow down a bit. So we actually know where we're going. And I also did at one point in time, well, actually no, at one point in time, last year I had a pawpaw tasting at Brickworks. So what pawpaw, if anyone knows what pawpaw tree, the pawpaw tree is, it's one of our traditional foods. It's a tropical tree that can grow, that grows this far north. Mm. It has a, the pawpaw fruit has like a pineapple, mangoey, citrusy taste. And I realized that not a lot of First Nation youth, mm. even adults, have tried this before. Mm. Because our trees were cut down when the settlers came over. Mm. So, did a pawpaw tasting. And once again, I told them, what I'm going to do is introduce you to your blood memory again. Let's see what happens this time. So I had a bunch of First Nations youth and adults in it at the program. They tried the pawpaw and their eyes got so big. They're like, what is this? I went, it's pawpaw. I said, what you're doing right now is that you're connecting to that blood memory. And it's all connecting together. I said, now that you tried it this, this time in this real life, you're going to want more of this. Right. And my goal with that is to get, more, to, to get more and more First Nations people growing pawpaw. Mm. Heck, to get more and more First Nations growing our own traditional foods. Because mm. I realize there's a big need in that. Because mm. if we do not do that, the big corporations, big agri are going to come in and take it over and do what they want with it. Yeah. If we don't do it, stake our claim now. Well, that is something maybe we can talk. First of all, uh, I'm not familiar with that myself. Okay. Now, Papa? Papa. Papa. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, how long does it take to grow? <laughs> <laughs> so it takes about five, four to five years to actually see your fruit on the tree. Okay. All right. Um, it's a very, it's um, to grow Papa, the first two years of his life has got to be in the shade. Mm. It's an understory tree. Mm. Um, How big does it get? So it gets about, I'm going to say about six to seven inches. Mm-hmm. Um, green on the outside. You cut it open, has like a yellowy look inside, almost mm-hmm. like a mango. Mm-hmm. And it has nice big seeds. Okay. The seeds must be stratified for at least eight weeks. I mean, in the cold for eight weeks. Okay. And how big does the tree get eventually? Oh, geez. <laughs> Depending on the growing conditions. Mm. Understory tree, this tree can get about maybe 20 feet tall. Okay. Depending on like the uh, growing conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the fruit itself, one of the reasons why the fruit has not become popular 
is because when it ripens, you basically have two or three days to eat it before mm. it goes bad. Mm. So we, we did. I did another pawpaw tasting for a um, podcast. Okay. And someone made pawpaw gelato. Okay. I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. More of this, please. You know what? I actually think the more you, you mention this, I think I remember something about this and maybe even this podcast you're talking about. Uh, because it's really familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so something is triggering. Maybe it's that blood memory. <laughs> the blood memory. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so how do you get your hands on the seeds in, in order to grow something like this? All right. So at Evergreen Brickworks, we have three trees on site. Because hmm. one thing you need to know about pawpaw trees, you need more than one. Okay. Cross pollinate. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, so we have three trees on site, and they've, they've been fruiting for the past two years. I've been collecting seeds that way. And then meeting Paul DeCampo, who does pawpaws. He's a pawpaw fanatic. Uh, meeting people at Forbes Wild Foods. They all do pawpaws now. And so I talked to them about getting seeds. Mm. And they say, sure, we have seeds for you. Great. I'm, on, I'm on the lookout for even for some saplings as well. Because my, my goal is to introduce <laughs> way more pawpaw trees to the city of Toronto. Right. <laughs> right. Because if they can grow this far north, why not plant them? Yeah. The good thing about the pawpaws is that they like wet feet, so they can take a lot of water. Oh, really? They'd be perfect in a ravine here. Mm. Just putting it out there. Really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, now, so how long have you been been uh, working uh, with the Evergreen in, in terms of wanting to bring these uh, people more, you know, to get in touch with the land, to get right. in touch with the blood memory, to, you know, to expand that and get more people involved? I've been working at Brickworks for Evergreen Brickworks mm. for four years now. Okay. Um, I've been part of a program called INAC Funding, yep. Indigenous Northern Affairs Canada. Yep. For, so for the past three years, they have been funding us. Okay. And they've been giving giving us money to, how do I say this? Um, I don't want to, well, re-indigenize Brickworks. Okay. To make in, Indigenous placemaking at Brickworks. Sure. So we have, we created, my team and I at the time, we created a program called Food Medicine Ceremony, which is all about bringing the people down, getting people, getting the, the community back down to Brickworks. Mm. And so doing the food part is like doing the indigenous agricultural techniques, mm-hmm. which I realized people are really interested in that. And that started bringing people down where I'd get them to come down. And we'd spend the whole day doing gardening, learning, learning things that I, that I learned either from my grandfather or from, from school. Right. Right. Then I found out that more people want to learn things they learned from my grandfather than when mm-hmm. I learned from school. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, sure. I'll teach you this because it's still, it's still with her traditional ways of doing things. Right. Um, and just getting it, that got them down. Now more and more, more and more communities coming down. They're seeing the value of being at Brickworks and enjoying the valley. Because one thing I realized that when they come to the come to the Evergreen Brickworks, they always say, "Wow, this is in Toronto." I'm mm. Like, yep, because mm. this is forested area, right? Right, right. That's actually really easy to get to. Right. Um, so I just want to jump in and mention again that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you could also listen on the Radio Player Canada app uh, anywhere across the country. If you download the app and you type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. And uh, yeah, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, listen uh, on your device of choice. My guest is Isaac Crosby. He is... Um, uh, here to talk about uh, his his family history, uh, in part because we're just finishing off uh, Black History Month, and uh, part of his heritage is both Black and Indigenous. And uh, Isaac, I'd like to ask you more about that in mm-hmm. terms of because of that unique heritage. Mm-hmm. 
how do you see things uh, in your, your culture that have blended some of those things together differently than you might find in another indigenous uh, community? Ooh, good question. <laughs> so being black indigenous, coming from both cultures, they blended quite well together because um, they both have respect for the land. They both realize that there's something greater than you and I. Mm. Um, and, well, they both had the same oppressor, right? Mm. Um, I, for the longest time, thought that I had to separate the two. Mm. And I thought, okay, I'll just have to be this, you know. Mm. I'm with my black friends, got to be black. With my native friends, got to be a native sort of thing. <laughs> then I realized, I was getting, I said, no, I'm just, it's just got to be me. Mm. Just got to be me. And it's up to them to accept me or accept me or not. Mm-hmm. If they don't, oh, right. well, that's your loss. Right. You can't right. do much about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is who I am. <laughs> um, so it's, it's been, it's quite, a, quite well blended. Mm. Quite very well blended, actually. Mm. Um, you can sit, sit back and look at my family and look at the things we do how we honor, honor the earth, how we honor each other, mm. how it's all about our family and keeping our fam- close-knit family together, mm. right? It's a, it's, a, it's a great path to walk. Mm. And then growing older and doing more research, then you realize that, wait a minute, black indigenous people are, as my, my friends call us, blindians. <laughs> they, we what? Jazz, mm. soul, mm. gospel, mm. blues, all that great music yeah. out there started by black indigenous. Exactly. The, the merging of the two cultures, yeah. right? Yeah. I come from two cultures that gave you amazing music, mm. amazing spirituality, mm. and the care for the earth. Yeah. Wow. That's where I come from. And amazing food. If that, you think about the native cultures, yeah. we fed the world. Right. True we enough. fed the world. What? Wow. I like the way you put that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Uh, so listen, I don't know if you're from because of what you just said, mm-hmm. it popped into my head. Are you familiar with the film Rumble? Yes. That film? Yeah. Woo-wee! Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, if you haven't heard, if you haven't, uh, if the listeners, if you haven't checked out Rumble, uh, the Indians uh, that rock the world, mm-hmm. check it out because it's exactly like what you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, uh, listen, uh, we have some time left mm-hmm. and. I wanted to, uh, you know, sort of further talk about your your desire to get land back. Right. And um, as you said, it's down near the Windsor area. Yes. Yes. Um, what what has happened in terms of developing that that footprint for you more? I guess what I'm what I'm really wanting to ask is, you mentioned this about yearly. You guys have a gathering back yes. in your community. Yes. Um, you say people come from all over North America. All over North America. So how many people show up, and what do you learn when that happens <laughs> every year? Well, I will say this one thing. I come from a very big family. <laughs> very big. Okay. My grandparents, my, on my mother's side, mm. had 18 children. Mm. Wow. My grandmother, my mother's mother, mm. comes from a family of 14. Wow. Yeah. Grandfather, family of 10. Mm. Each one of them like 10, 12, you know. Sure. Huge family. Teams. teams. <laughs> <laughs> we had our own teams back then. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> so we, when we have our family gathering, usually around July 1st, everyone comes home from around, from Hawaii, from all over North America, mm. to learn about who we are, to relearn about who we are. To We, we have a, we have a great, great big family tree mm. we've had for years. Mm. And every year, we add names to it, so the newborns. And we'll, you know, put on the, the death dates on people who passed on. Sure. And we go through and we show show the kids, this is your family. This is who you are. Um, and it's 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 amazing because a lot of my friends will come to come to our family gatherings and they have a good time. Because for a whole weekend. Right. 
from Friday to Sunday. And because we because we have a lot of Christians in our family, we have we have a church service on Sunday mornings. Mm. Totally fine with us because mm-hmm. it's still the same God. Mm. But like for us, like I tell my friends when they come down, Fridays are fish fry. Right. Saturday is basically our big barbecue. Right. And Sunday's our church service. Right. Stuff like that. So we have mm. a good time. Mm. It's great to, it's great for us to see everybody and see all the new ones who are coming coming in and meet all the new spouses that come in and yeah. give the history sure. of who we are. Right. And let people know this is this is who we are and this is the land we come from. Right. And with that, that that I keep that in mind every single time I'm writing something down, writing out an application for to talk to the government or have them come down and speak with us. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it's 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 fun yet daunting at the same time. I have to ask you this, mm-hmm. and only because uh, I I see it in other places occasionally. Um, I'm wondering about resistance. Mm. Are you getting any resistance to other communities or other I- indigenous uh, uh, pockets of of uh, communities that are in the area that? Uh, in in terms of what you're doing, or are they are they're familiar with what you're doing. They're familiar with your desire to get uh, you know your own community mm-hmm. base there. Mm-hmm. What about that? So far, no resistance. Right, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's on board. They want to help us out. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, for me, knock on wood. Mm-hmm. But there are there's resistance from like living in Toronto, talking to other First Nations uh, people. Sure. And then you realize, wow, there is actually anti-black racism within <laughs> the within the cir- the sacred circle. Mm. Which shouldn't be there right. if you listen to a lot of the elders, mm. and so you know you can't be there. It's like no, I am. I'm not. Gonna, I cannot change who I am because you think I can't be that. Right. But here's my history. Here's everything. So if you want me to sit down with you and go through all the documents, and everything I can. Mm. I said, but it's up to you. Right. But I know who I am. Right. So we just keep going forward. Right. Um, now, as we talked about at the top of the top of the um, uh, interview, it is maple syrup time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, sweet water is flowing. Mm-hmm. But it's also, uh, I guess, spring uh, maybe just around the corner, <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be time to start planting, and people start looking at that. We talked about the pa- pa- papa papa tree, uh-huh. <laughs> and everybody's going to come down and pick up their seeds so yeah. they can start planting. <laughs> I know <laughs> a mad dash for brookworks, <laughs> <laughs> which is wonderful. It would be great to see uh, more of those trees uh, yes. coming up. And yet, remember, you have to get—you can't just plant one; you got to have two together. You need two for cross pollination. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do you see, you know, it's changing, environment is changing, the weather is changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have recently uh, done some interviews with some people who talk about, you know, the way we are affecting climate. It's affecting uh, trees and animals differently because, mm-hmm. for instance, plants are triggered by temperature, mm-hmm. whereas animals, such as bees, are triggered by sun. Mm-hmm. So I, I I now hear that these things are getting out of whack. Yes. And so being the bees trying to pollinate or to even try food, find food, they're they're coming out l- too late uh, now for some of the plants, and that's affecting things. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, wow, I have lots to say about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just about watching nature in itself. Um, we as humans, we have we have we have caused change in the climate. What I'm trying to do is trying to find a way that we can salvage something. Trying to find, trying to teach people how to find a way to save the earth that we can. We can't, we can't always rely on these big businesses. We, can, no respect to the government, we can't rely on the government for mm. to save the to save the climate because right. they're moving too slow. It's mm. up for the people. It's up for us to do it, and we got to find ways to do it. And a lot of the ways to do it is actually look at indigenous agricultural techniques. Mm. Look at how the way we used to farm. 
that will help us. Sure. That will help a lot. Look at look at all the native species trees that we need to start replanting. Mm. Even even of the shrubs and the flowers we need to replant. Right. Because they have deeper root systems and they can take a drought. They can take our winters here. And we've gotten away from that because we're we're trying to be we're trying to be European. Mm. We're trying to have that beautiful garden, that beautiful lawn, stuff like that. That's not what I want. Mm-hmm. If you look at nature, mm-hmm. nature doesn't really do that. Right. It's like when I'm gardening at Brickworks, and I do. I have I have my traditional indigenous garden, have mound gardens, with my clay pot irrigation. Then I have my European garden, mm. and I show the difference. Sure, I show how the, the indigenous garden is really about taking care of the earth, taking care of the soil that is on, in a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Whereas a European one, everything's in rows, everything's spaced out, so the soil gets cooked a lot longer in the sun. And there's not really any companion planting happening there. And a side note for me is that I show the difference because I show how easy it is for people to steal stuff out of my European garden than to steal stuff out of my indigenous garden. Because the European <laughs> garden, everything's separated and stuff. Yep. People can see, I want right. that, that, that. Sure. The indigenous garden, everything's kind of mixed together like, yes. like this little bushy area. Absolutely, yeah. They're like, I don't want to go in there. No. <laughs> I'm like, good, don't go in right. there. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think you're talking about corn, beans, and squash, corn, three beans sisters, and squash, right? Exactly. And people don't understand, and, and there's, they're called the three sisters because of exactly how they help each other grow. Exactly. So we do back home, we do three versions of corn of um, three sisters. Mm-hmm. Corn, beans, and squash yeah. are superfood, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mixed together, one complete protein. If we think our soil is bad, we'll do sunflowers, beans, and squash. Mm. And sunflowers, what she'll do, she'll help clean the soil for us, ah. all right? If our soil is too compact, mm. we'll do sunroot, beans, and squash. Mm. Sunroot, for people out there, people know it as Jerusalem artichoke. It's not from Jerusalem. It's not an artichoke. It's part. It's from here. It's part of the sunflower family. It's mm. one of our traditional foods. Mm. So if the soil is compact, we put her in. She grows first. She'll. One thing I'll say: she'll spread out and take over, take, take over your garden. So you got to mm. be careful with her. Right. But she'll she'll make the the soil less compact so you right. can grow in it. Right. So those are things I teach at Brickworks. Right. Different ways of doing things to affect your gardening. And, and that's a way of getting the plants to work for you. Yes. And help you help you uh, establish and make it easier for you to, exactly. to plant and garden and, exactly. and get food growing for yourself. Exactly. Uh, Isaac, it's been really a pleasure having you in the studio Thank and you. talking with you today uh, you. on so many, you know, so many <laughs> fronts. Uh, specifically, uh, we're coming to the end of Black History Month, mm-hmm. so it's been a pleasure to have you in here to talk about that side of your culture as well mm-hmm. as the indigenous side. Uh, about all the things you do uh, at at uh, at Evergreen uh, Brickworks mm-hmm. and the the wonderful things you're doing there to educate people and get them back to the earth and mm-hmm. get them to handle the earth and and feel that blood memory mm-hmm. um, and also uh, just uh, from your gardening expertise and and congratulations with the CBC uh, thing Thank that you're you. doing and and all the, I hope you all, I wish you all the well all the best in the future for Thank all the things much. that you can continue and it'd be great to have you back in here again at a later date to uh, see how things are going oh, on yeah. your uh, on your your uh, a challenge to get your land base back uh, down towards the Windsor area. Okay. Thank you very much. Let's do it. All right. (laughs) And that's uh, Isaac Isaac Crosby. And it's been a pleasure to have him in the studio today. We're going to take a break. Don't go away. We will be right back after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. Jamie Schmall is new in his role as the Crown Indigenous Relations Shadow Minister for the Official Opposition. He says the Wet'suwet'en situation has sparked debate in conservative circles around their own relationships with Indigenous peoples in this country. He spoke with our Ottawa reporter, Caroline O'Neill, about his priorities in this parliamentary session and the future of reconciliation. 
You said that what's been happening in Wet'suwet'en has been sparking debate in conservative circles. Can you tell me a little bit about what that debate's looking like? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show to talk about this very topical issue. Yeah, what we are noticing is that the status quo is not working. And this has been going on for quite some time and just kind of exasperated in the last few months on the Coastal Gas Link project, amongst among others. But it, it's showing that uh, we need to have a different conversation with First Nations community, uh, we being uh, parliamentarians, the government, um, the department. Uh, I think we need to have more of a uh, financial conversation with many of these First Nations communities and uh, providing them more of an opportunity to choose their path forward. One of the things that you talked about as well is building a groundwork for a better relationship with Indigenous peoples in Canada and the Conservative Party. For you, how do you start to lay that groundwork? Well, right now we have, within the party, started uh, an advisory committee uh, to talk about what our MPs are hearing from the First Nations communities within their riding. I've been going out on tour, visiting and meeting with people, whether in Ottawa or, or across the country, with First Nations leaders and members to talk about what they want to see. And so it, it, a lot of it is listening. A lot of it is gathering information. And hopefully at the end of the day, obviously we're going through a leadership campaign. So my job as Shadow Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations is to start this ball rolling, keep the conversation going, and hopefully, that whoever that leader might be, I'm still in this position after that day and I'm able to keep going. But if I'm not, I'm able to leave a, a good platform and a, and a good starting point uh, for whoever takes my spot. And we do know that in regards to candidates, uh, Marilyn Gladue does have a plan, but have you spoken with the other candidates about their plans for connecting with Indigenous peoples? I've spoken with uh, Marilyn. I've spoken with Aaron O'Toole. He is going to to be releasing his uh, Indigenous uh, platform very soon. And uh, I think Peter McKay will be doing the same. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what they have to say. Uh, more information is better. And I like the fact that uh, we're having a conversation about it. We're not trying to, to um, you know, uh, d- put it off or or delay this conversation i want to i'm very happy that we're having this conversation because canada cannot be successful without successful first nations communities and inuit and and metis so we we need to have this conversation we need to keep it going and i want to accelerate it what what we're talking about is is giving um, these first nations communities more freedom more ability to to have more say in in the issues that are affecting them, uh, but also the ability to solve problems locally, not having a top-down government-knows-best approach. And and that's that's what conservatism is about for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, is is, is less government, more freedom. And, and, and this is what we want to see for everyone. Plans should be coming soon from Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. What are some of the things that you would like to see in those plans? Well, I, I'd like to see what we... Uh, myself and, and others have been talking about in terms of the financial conversation with First Nations communities, the fact that the status quo uh, isn't working, that we need to uh, empower First Nations communities to make uh, more decisions on their own and also with their financial future. Um, you know, when we're talking about oil and gas development, energy, we're talking about hydroelectricity, what have you, those are all partnerships that industry 
needs to keep going and have that conversation first uh, right off the bat rather and, and has to be uh, meaningful right and uh, I, I think that if we're able to get First Nations communities to a, a point where they are able to to uh, better manage their 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 affairs locally um, I, I think that 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 bodes well for the future with partnerships with industry with resource projects because everyone will be in a better position and and uh, I think that's what everyone wants I think everyone wants prosperity and I think everyone wants to get there and and so we want to chart a path forward that uh, is more local driven is more uh, indigenous community driven than top-down government knows best the best approach and have you had the chance to take a look at Marilyn Gladys plans I've had a small look at it. I haven't uh, gone in depth about it. I'm waiting for them all to release their platforms before, uh, you know, I, I make a decision either way. But uh, um, I, I have taken a, a quick glance at hers. But again, I'm waiting for them all to come out and I'll look at them all individually. Now, the relationship between the Conservative Party and Indigenous communities has at times been described as fraught. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I, I think a lot of times, a lot of the problems that we're seeing in terms of boil water advisories, in terms of uh, issues with, with resource projects, is is because, and this is just what I've gathered so far, I've only been in this role a little while, but the comments I'm hearing seem to be the same. For boil water advisories, sometimes the, the government is and the department's proposing one solution, but the people on the ground with traditional knowledge, with with uh, you know uh, the, the 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 people and and their community uh, living in there in in that area uh, know what can solve the problem better. But if you're having a top-down approach to many of these solutions or so-called solutions, um, we're we're seeing a lot of issues where a community will go off a of boil water advisory, but go on a few months or weeks later, and and that's that's not right. And I think we need to to fix this where we're having more. Uh, local solutions. And we also see consortiums of First Nations communities coming together where they are able to to put their knowledge together. So we have more than one that are helping each other solve local problems. When Andrew Scheer announced that he would no longer be staying on as the leader of the Conservative Party, we did hear from Indigenous peoples in his riding, which does have a fairly high Indigenous population, that they felt left behind by him. Do you think as a leader, he made enough of an effort to connect with Indigenous peoples, especially in the election? Well, I know my predecessor, Kathy McLeod, did a, a lot of hard work to put forward uh, information and, and ideas on where we could go uh, as a party into the next election. Now, it's my job now to to push and keep this conversation going so that when the next election comes, whatever that is, whenever that next leader is is chosen, that there is enough momentum behind us to to really make it uh, in really put it in the spotlight in terms of how we want to uh, build that relationship with First Nations communities, which, as you said, could has been strained in the past. But uh, I think we have a lot to offer as a party in terms of uh, less top-down approach, more freedom, um, the the ability for First Nations communities to chart their own course and have a bigger say in that, and also share in some of the revenue that that uh, resource projects or hydroelectric projects have that can benefit communities on the local level. Certainly, as a shadow minister, it is your job to not only think about what it is that your party's doing, but also kind of looking critically at how the other parties are treating Indigenous peoples. But what role does your party leader play in connecting with Indigenous peoples? 
Yeah, absolutely. He, as you mentioned, he has a, uh, a large uh, First Nations uh, contingent within his riding. Uh, so as the just the local MP, I think we all try to engage with our First Nations communities as best we can and and hear from, from those people on the ground and bring those comments to Ottawa and hopefully develop party, uh, sorry, platform within the party to, to take to the next election. But also, and you're absolutely right, um, our job is not, you know, although we are the official opposition, our job is not to just, just criticize all the time. We want to, and this is something I'm trying to do amongst others, are trying to not only uh, criticize the government and what we feel they're doing uh, uh, could do better, uh, but also lay out a path forward that we think the government should take or at least propose that as a government in waiting. You did say that it was the conversations about what's been happening with Wet'suwet'en and the Solidarity Action that really kind of sparked sparked this debate. And for a lot of people, what's happened at Wet'suwet'en is putting the future of reconciliation into jeopardy and into question. I'm curious for yourself, what do you think the future of reconciliation is in the country right now? Well, reconciliation needs to continue. Obviously, parts of reconciliation includes um, includes uh, economic reconciliation. So, I think if if we're able to bring uh, a better conversation and a better process around how resource projects start, get off the ground, and and allow First Nations communities to share in jobs, to share in in spin-off businesses or businesses that provide services to to the uh, whatever the resource project is i i think that's a, that's a path to, to look, raising people out of prosperity increasing the quality of life and, and making and making things better uh, i think that that's a, a huge conversation that i think needs to take place and and that it and that everyone realizes uh indigenous non-indigenous alike that that um if it's done properly in a respectful manner, um, business and industry can uh, work with the environment, and it can bring uh, greater prosperity and and uh, and and health and education. It can it, it helps everything, and so I think that's a big piece of it. What are your thoughts on the current government's approach to reconciliation in this country? Well, I, I think based on what the government has been doing, I. I think I, I, I will say that I think they they tried to um, uh, start it off four or five years ago. Uh, obviously, they haven't been able to to achieve um, what they thought was was their their path forward. And we've laid out some criticisms because of that, because of the way they have been been acting. They reconciliation from what. You see some of these protests uh, movements have said reconciliation is dead. Hopefully that is not the case. I, again, I think there is a, a path forward here. But what is going on in terms of, of um, out in Coastal Gas Link, whether it be Trans Mountain or what have you, I, I think the, the government has has uh, dropped the ball on all of these files. And in in as a result, causing uh, greater hardship to these First Nations communities, many of which was we're going to benefit from uh, these these projects going forward, and and the, these are uh, people that have uh, we're looking to start a job, maybe in the trade, maybe start a business. Uh, those are the people who are being hurt because of this prime minister's inaction, and and those are the, the people we we want to help. We 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 think there is a path forward, and uh, hopefully, whenever this election comes, we earn with the help of a good 
uh, solid Indigenous platform and in, in the election campaign that we are able to win over some of these communities and, and show them that we are, are prepared, are willing to listen, are willing to help make their lives better. You mentioned that you have already been connecting to different Indigenous peoples and leaders, and that includes having Indigenous leaders come for a briefing earlier this year. Can you tell me a little bit about what that briefing was like and what were some takeaways for you? Okay, yes, we we did have some Indigenous leaders come and make a presentation to caucus. Uh, A lot of what they were talking about is is reconciliation in terms of economic reconciliation and how when everyone is in a better position in terms of First Nations communities are able to to uh, manage their affairs better with the more uh, ability to manage local issues. Uh, They are able to leverage different funds to to build infrastructure within their community, uh, train their, their people on how to to uh, work a water treatment plant or whatever. Um, and also the fact that if, if First Nations communities are able to share in resource revenue, resource partnership agreements, um, everyone's quality of life starts to increase. And then you start seeing some of these problems being, being solved in terms of those that are, are, are suffering from addiction. If they're if there is, as um, Alice Ross put, if there's if there's a if there's a path forward where people see um, a, a a ability to to grow themselves as well as help their community, it, everyone everyone rises up, right? A, a rising tide lifts all boats, and and that's what uh, uh, we we were talking about in a lot of ways because um, a lot of times there are First Nations communities uh, that are isolated that are. Um, have have, have it a uh, difficult way forward in terms of the economy, but if we're able to help with that and and bring it forward, um, I think that's a good conversation to have. Building off of that caucus meeting, what are your next steps? Well, as I said, we're going to try to keep this ball rolling. I think uh, we need to uh, keep pushing this uh, conversation. I need to keep uh, listening, and as do uh, all my colleagues, which I know they're doing uh, very passionately. I know coming out of that caucus meeting, after meeting with those Indigenous leaders, uh, we are ener- energized about this. We we feel that um, we have a good uh, position in terms of just the, the conservative values in, in general, in terms of, of left government, more freedom. I, I think when we're talking about economic activity, we're on the same page in terms of solving a lot of these problems, whether it be boil water advisory, addiction, housing. Uh, I think our our just our basic what it is to be conservative aligns very nicely with with those uh, First Nations communities, Inuit and and Métis that want to uh, bring bring their communities up and and lift them up, and that at the same time lift up the quality of life uh, with everybody, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Looking ahead to some of the issues that we've already seen in this parliamentary session and the things that could come ahead, especially with the changing spring weather, bringing different conditions to First Nations, I'm curious, what are your priorities on a whole as the Shadow Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations this parliamentary session? Absolutely. So a lot of what I'll be focusing on is uh, the relations side in terms of of listening, in terms of uh, growing and in terms of passing on and, and receiving information and, and building the, the platform and a better policy for uh, Indigenous communities. And uh, that's what I'm going to be doing, as well as holding this government to account on their, their failures in this area. And as I said, not just critique, but also put a path forward and, and how, how we, the Conservative Party, if given the chance to govern in the next election or after the next election, 
how we hope to make their lives better. So it's going to be a busy, uh, busy file, and that's a good thing. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, my goal, if uh, I'm still in this position or, or what have you, is to to help make the lives of each and every member on, on Indigenous communities a little bit better. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Was there anything else at all that you would like to say? I appreciate the opportunity, um, and uh, I, I appreciate that this is a very busy file, but I, I want uh, your listeners to know that um, as, as the new Shadow Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations and my partner, uh, Gary Vidal, who is the uh, Shadow Minister for um, Indigenous Services, we are open to listening. We're open to hearing uh, new ideas, and uh, at the same time, we're here to uh, fight for the individual's on the First Nations communities, Inuit and Métis, and uh, hope to uh, continue that going forward, even after the leadership, uh, so that we are in a better position in the next election to to really have a solid, solid uh, offering to those in the First Nations communities that, that traditionally might not uh, look at the Conservative Party as an option, but I'm hoping that if, we, if we're successful in this, that we, we will have uh, the ability to uh, make inroads in some of those communities where uh, we haven't been able to in the past. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.